I am rolling tape on my side, so I am ready to go whenever you need. <laughs> I can't put my Apple Watch on Do Not Disturb because it's broken. Hello, Mark Steadman here, and welcome to another episode of List Envy. I'm at the tail end of my cold, um, and uh, this is cause for celebration. What is also cause for celebration is uh, I've got a, a wonderful guest for this week's episode, which is all about the music of the Latin boogaloo genre and, may I say, era. Um, this was something of which I was entirely ignorant, and so it's been a really, really fun journey. So we'll we'll get straight to it. Um, there's lots of music in this episode. So if you are a power listener and you have a podcast app that lets you change the speed and you have a speed other than 1.0, um, I would I'd, I'd t- take it down. Yes, it will mean that we sound drunk, but you'll also be able to get to hear uh, lots of uh, fun music. If you think, I don't know what Latin Boogaloo is, that's fine. You will almost certainly have heard some of it, so it will make a lot of sense. Now, my guest, Oliver, is the uh, co-host of the Heat Rocks podcast. He also writes uh, a long-running music blog called Soul Sides, uh, and links to everything he does are, of course, in the episode notes. Um, And just uh, uh, one final thing is, if you'd like a playlist uh, for Apple Music or Spotify, made up of uh, the songs uh, and the bands that we're talking about, then uh, you'll be able to get that by signing up to our newsletter, which uh, a link to which you will also find in the show notes uh, and uh, on our website, listenvpod.com. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, say hello, um, ask us questions, let us know um, what we've missed, or if there's songs that uh, that you've really enjoyed, uh, then get us uh, get, get in touch. You can also email listenvy at gmail.com. That will just about do it. So let's, uh, let's get straight into the this episode uh, in which we count down our favorite uh, Latin Boogaloo albums. And now I, um, I I began by asking Oliver, what, why Boogaloo? Latin Boogaloo has been a musical niche genre, whatever you want to call it, that I have been a fan of um, since I really came upon it and discovered it back, going back close to 20 years now. And it's a combination of things. I think as a DJ, as someone who just loves listening to music, there is something incredibly infectious about Latin Boogaloo. Um, you know, like a lot of Latin music styles, at least the ones that became popularized here in the United States, it is an inherent dance style. Like that's the reason it was created. And so the use of, or the fusion really of both Afro uh, Cuban and Afro Latin rhythms with R&B rhythms. It just creates this incredible, I keep using the word infectious because I can't think of something, anything better than that, but it just makes you want to move. So I think there is just on a basic aesthetic level, I love it. But I also think that Latin Boogaloo teaches us something about the history of cross-cultural musical exchange and especially how that gets generated in different generations of young people. And in particular, those who are the first generation of to be born and raised in the United States, because not all, but most of the key pioneers of the Latin Boogaloo scene in New York, at least, these were not necessarily the immigrants from uh, the Afro-Caribbean region who became the kings of Mambo in the previous era. Uh, the kings and queens of uh, of cha cha cha, etc. Rather, these tended to be, uh, you know, what we call New, New Yorkans, right? These are second generation American raised Puerto Ricans, as well as Cuban and Dominican, etc. Musicians who gravitated towards boogaloo because it was a style that captured their own musical experience. On the one hand, growing up with the music of the older generation, the mambos, the pachangas, the charangas from the 50s and early 60s, but then these are kids who grew up in places like New York, especially Uptown, Harlem, East Harlem, uh, Spanish Harlem, as, as they call it as well. And these are f- people who grew up, kids list who grew up listening to doo music, who g- grew up listening to early R&B. So taking the Latin music within their community, but combining it with what they're hearing in ballrooms on the radio in terms of American R&B, to them, it just made sense to combine these into one. And even if Latin Boogaloo certainly never had the kind of popularity that something like hip hop achieved in terms of going global, in a lot of ways, I think of Latin Boogaloo as being one of the examples of a precursor to hip hop, which is to say that when you have a generation 
of young people who are intent with creating something that they feel like belongs to them, something that they identify with that is not just handed down from an older generation, but feels like there's a genesis happening. Latin Boogaloo, to me, is a fantastic example of a hyper-regional, neighborhood-based, practically, style that emerges out of this cross-cultural exchange and fusion, all of which is happening in New York City in the 1960s. And you can go around a lot of different cities, not just in the US, but around the world and find other examples of that. It just happens to be that for me, partly because I do love the music aesthetically, that there's also this very rich intellectual, social, cultural element to Latin Boogaloo, which I think also makes it really, really fascinating. Absolutely. Um, Listening to it, and I, I was... I, I sort of knew the style, but not necessarily by name. Um, and I, I certainly, what I'd heard was a lot more instrumental. Um, and so I, sort of starting to, to really dive more into this, I was surprised at how that sort of Harlem uh, soul influence really does come through in a lot of the, a lot of the music. And it is also, I think, as a consequence of that, one of the main criticisms that was thrown at it, at it, and Latin Boogaloo was highly criticized throughout its relatively short lifespan by an oftentimes an older generation, not necessarily always older, but usually by what you might describe as Latin music purists thought of Latin Boogaloo as a kind of musical degradation, as an abomination, I think is some language that people have used at times. Um, I think the mildest form of criticism is simply that it was very bubblegum, which is another way of saying that this is not serious music. It doesn't live up to the standards of complexity and sophistication that something like Mambo at the height of its popularity in the 1950s achieved because they thought that what Latin Boogaloo did by combining the Afro-Cuban influence with American R&B was to effectively dumb it down. And if you just draw the parallels again, people had the same critique, actually still have the same critique of hip hop, is that, yes, you might be drawing upon the influences of American soul and funk and rock and roll and all these things, but you're dumbing it down. Somehow you're making it lesser. This music is not as great as the music that clearly influenced it. And you see really, really, really similar criticisms criticisms being thrown at Latin Boogaloo, which to me, I think really speaks to that generational divide is because Latin Boogaloo was more popular than the older styles that had fallen out of favor in places like New York. It was a way of these OGs who had suddenly been displaced off the radio, out of the ballrooms by this younger generation. This is their way of saying like, well, fine, you're just a fad right now. It's just a trend, but you're not really making quote unquote real Latin music. And it's it's not difficult to find these critiques in the, the written record, uh, people's testimonials basically criticizing Latin Boogaloo for being for being bubblegum and again, being a degradation of, of serious Latin music. So being um, not just uh, English or British, but but being where I'm from specifically, there's a, a great heritage of uh, reggae and reggae revival music um, in 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 my city, and I there are there are pal- parallels that you can draw in terms of the the sort of fusion aspect and and the way that a lot of reggae was influenced by. Uh, you know, a, a lot of a lot of sort of pop and Motown music made its way to Jamaica and was sort of put through that prism and then came back again. And and there were artists like John Holt who who made careers out of um, sort of reinterpreting that kind of music, but also then you know obviously making making their own uh, music uh, and and a, a very distinct sound. And it's 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 interesting that like I don't know if I ever heard that criticism levied at music like reggae because its roots were kind of less, for want of a better word, sophisticated. Because if you listen to the, like, listening to the Latin Boogaloo uh, stuff that I've been, that I have been listening to, it is a lot more sophisticated than um, R&B. The melodies are a lot more complex. Um, There's a lot more focus on harmonies, um, but also that, you know, that the melodies are much more intricate and the rhythms are much more intricate. And I think, um, as much as I'm sure that, you know, Latin, as you're saying, sort of Latin music purists um, have, have said that Boogaloo has, has dumbed it down. There is another way of looking at it that it's really sort of elevated uh, an area of pop to a degree. And that, that might be a slightly snobbish or elitist way of looking at it. But, it, you know, it, it, it does kind of spring to mind. Well, I would say that I do think compared to if you if you compare you know, hit Latin Boogaloo songs, and we'll probably be talking about a few of these uh, upcoming. But if you were to compare that with something that 
Tito Puente's band would have played back in the 50s during the height of the Mambo era. It is more simplistic in terms of the polyrhythms have been simplified because really what one of the more famous descriptions of Boogaloo is, and I forget who this is from, it's either from the, someone in the Joe Cuba band or maybe it was Pete Rodriguez, I think it's the Joe Cuba band, but they described it as cha-cha with a backbeat. Uh, and the backbeat is what came from R&B and compared to the kind of polyrhythmic styles that a lot of Afro-Cuban music had, the R&B backbeat is more, it's more simplified. And I think that was partly what they were responding to. Now, the point that you're making is that on a melodic level, a lot of what you hear in Latin Boogaloo might sound more sophisticated or, or complex compared to conventional American R&B of that same era. That might be true, but but you're coming at it from, let's listen to what was happening, let's say on labels like Motown or whatever in the early 60s or mid 60s, and then compare this to what's happening on labels like Fania or Allegra or Tico. But they're the people who are criticizing Latin Boogaloo, they're not the ones listening to Motown. They're the ones listening to that earlier generation of Afro-Latin, Afro-Cuban music. And so for them, that's where that kind of simplification comes in. So my thing is, I don't necessarily disagree that Latin Boogaloo was somehow more simplified on a musicological level. My point is, who cares? Yes, absolutely. That doesn't devalue it. Right. Does it sound good? Is it something that connects with audiences? And Latin Boogaloo, again, in its short lifespan, it demonstrated that it was very, very much able to connect with audiences, not just in New York, not just in North America, but really throughout North and South America, you can find Boogaloo that travels back to West Africa, that travels to Europe. So this becomes, in its brief lifespan, it becomes globally popular. And I don't think it's simply because it was simplified. I think it's because people like to listen to it and dance to it. You were mentioning before about um, listening to a lot of reggae music and sort of not hearing a lot of the kind of Afro-Cuban influence. One thing that I would suggest that you might want to check out would be uh, a song. It might have been a B-side by the Scatolites called uh, Suavilo, S-U-A-V-I, no, sorry, Suavito, S-U-A-V-I-T-O, which is absolutely that one four five chord progression that the Scatolites are playing with. And it's actually one of my favorite uh, Rocksteady era songs, partly because it is such an obviously Afro-Latin influenced uh, uh, cut coming from you know, one of the giants of the Jamaican music scene of that era. What would you say are some of the sort of key ingredients um, of, of that particular distinctive sound? For me, it always begins with the, the riff. And one of the things that is most Latin about Latin Boogaloo is, and I am by no means a expert on Afro-Cuban music, so I might be getting some of this terminology wrong, but it's, it's, a, it's a riff that is oftentimes in Latin Boogaloo played on the piano and I believe it's called a Montuno riff. I think on the bass, it would be called a tumbao. But in any case, it is that cyclical, melodic, oftentimes played on keyboards riff that begins so many of the important or classic Latin Boogaloo songs. And that distinguishing element, I think, is the first signal, for example, that you're listening to a Latin Boogaloo song. And to be clear, that style is drawn from older Afro-Latin styles, I think most notably the Wajira, which is a Cuban, I believe a Cuban regional style. So you can trace where, and, and things like the cha-cha-cha and pachanga, like all of these other previous styles all have some of those same elements. But to me, it always begins with that Montuno riff, you know, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. I'm probably completely tone deaf right now, so I apologize to your listeners. But it it's played on a very classic I want to say is it a one three four chord, um, which you hear a lot in rock and roll music coming out of that same era. Partly because they've been influenced by Cuban music that has made its way to the U.S. And so the ways in which a lot of classic rock and roll songs—I mean, one of the most famous examples that uses the same chord progression—would be "Louie Louie" by the Kingsmen. Dun 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 dun. Dun, dun. At the heart, that is basically a Cuban Montuno riff that has been adapted into rock and roll. But again, you can hear that riff oh, practically omnipresent on every Latin uh, Boogaloo song I can think of. There's a, a great band from Australia uh, that I, I really like called the Cat Empire. Mm. 
and they have um, a few songs that are very Latin infused. They've, they've got one called Soli Sambra, uh, which is definitely uh, I, I, I would classify um, as a Boogaloo uh, track. But they've got one called One Four Five, which is exactly about the kind of thing you were talking about. It's exactly about that that chord progression. Right. So I said one three four, but you, I think you have it right. I think yeah, it's a one I, four yeah. five chord progression. Right. Right. We'll, we'll get into this uh, into our list in a tick, but um, before we do, I didn't want to pass up the opportunity um, for you to tell me uh, and the listener about uh, Heat Rocks. Sure, sure. Heat Rocks is a podcast that uh, myself and my co-host Morgan Rhodes, who is a music supervisor for television and movies out here in Los Angeles. We started it uh, close to two years ago. In fact, uh, the the week that you and I are taping right here, we just released our 100th episode. So we've made it to 100 and hopefully 100 more. And the idea behind it is really simple. is every week we invite a guest on to talk about one of their favorite or more most formative albums. We've had uh, everyone from musical artists, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the recent episodes we've released, would include people like R&B star Raphael Sadiq. We've had Michelle Indagio Cello on. Uh, our first episode featured uh, Atlanta's uh, Joy talking about Betty Davis's They Say I'm Different. And so it's, it's up to the guests to choose what album they want to talk about. And then me and Morgan do our prep to come in and, and have hopefully a fun and insightful conversation around the artist, perhaps the musical genre or movement they represent, uh, the year in which it comes out and thinking about what was happening else in, in pop music in that, that moment. But besides artists, we also have music writers and music scholars and DJs and other music supervisors, uh, television directors, etc. Because if there's one to me universal is that even if the album might seem slightly antiquated in the era of the infinite playlist where you can reorganize anything you want into whatever order you want, I think albums as a medium still hold sway as markers for where you were in different parts of your life. So in other words, when you think about the key music that uh, you were that you grew up listening to, Oftentimes, yes, that can be tied to the songs and singles, absolutely. But I think for a lot of us, the album still holds sway. We can think about the first album we bought, the first album that we played over and over, the first album that we introduced to the person that would eventually become our, our significant other. So I think that the album still has this power to allow us to organize who we are, when we were, uh, and all these other things that come with it. And so being able to have at least once a week, this conversation with people about how music, how they think of their lives and society and all these other things through something as humble as the album is a tremendous amount of fun and is constantly, constantly insightful. I tell you what, as someone who, who enjoys music, um, but but sort of listening through uh, the episodes and scrolling through some of the some of the uh, ones that I've not had the chance to to check out, it is a great way to broaden your uh, broaden your musical horizons and have that done by people who who really care about what they're talking about and can um, and can really testify uh, to it. And and obviously the the research that um, that you and Morgan do uh, comes through as well in the fact that you know you 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 add you help add context um, to these to these albums. Well, thank you so much, and I, I do think that for me. The vast majority of the albums that we end up talking about is I'm constantly learning new things. It's very rare that I'll go into an episode feeling like, oh, I know everything there is to know about this. No, and most I don't know if there's any case where I ever felt that confident. Uh, and and I wouldn't enjoy doing this as much if I didn't feel like I was learning something from it. Uh, my day job is as a college professor, and I think one of the truisms about being a teacher is that the best teachers are also eternal students because you can't be a good teacher if you're not open to constantly learning new things. And I apply that same concept to being a writer and in this case to being a podcaster. So um, why don't you uh, start us off then with um, giving us your your number one pick? Sure. So my number one Latin Boogaloo album pick and this was tough, and I'm sure for everyone you've had on with their various lists, the picking that number one, I take it back. 
I think actually the number five is the most difficult because it's the last slot you have. But number, nonetheless, number one might be the second most difficult to pick. <laughs> but I ended up going with Joe Baton's debut album, Gypsy Woman, which was released on Fania Records. And I, I'm embarrassed because I don't remember if it was 64, 65, or 66 because everything tends to come around right in the mid-60s. But what I do know is it absolutely was Joe Baton's debut album. And it is an absolute classic of the genre. I, I listened to um, to that album. I I have a different pick for him, um, be, because you know this is this is we're, we're going to be building um, an objective list out of subjective um, uh, opinions. But you know that that's that's the uh, that's the job. Um, but that, yeah, okay. That's um, I mean, what 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 gives it that number one spot for you? It's a couple of things. I think for one. Joe serves as a perfect example for some of the things I was describing earlier about Latin Boogaloo being this genre that represents an intersection, a collision, a fusion of different cultural influences and heritages. Joe himself is mixed race. His father um, is Filipino, uh, was Filipino American. His mother was African American. He grew up in Spanish Harlem, uh, aka East Harlem. And people, because of his mixed race appearance, just assumed that he was Puerto Rican to the extent that he became the leader of a Puerto Rican youth gang back in the 1960s. And partly as a way to get out of of trouble, he started a band with a a few folks from the neighborhood, which is how he formed his first band. And that's the band that he took to to Fania and got signed and, and put out his album. The other thing about Joe, too, is that he is one of bar none, one of the best vocalists, especially when it comes to singing soul music, to ever come out of that scene. And we'll talk a little bit more about this with some of the other albums on the list, is that as good as the songs may be in in other ways, the the quality of the vocal singing wasn't necessarily going to be world-beating compared to other soul singers and to the extent that Latin Boogaloo was this intersection between Latin and soul music. I think Joe had... I mean, I'm not sure that anyone had a better voice than 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 he. I, I won't say that he did because he's still alive. He's still performing all the time. Than he does. He just has an incredible voice. And I think so. What you're getting with something like the Gypsy Woman album and really his entire catalog in that era is someone who understands the musical chops of Latin Boogaloo and can execute on those to perfection, but also someone who has just an incredible voice. And I think those are the things that make something like Gypsy Woman the ultimate kind of Latin Boogaloo album and representing both the Afro-Cuban, but as well as the American R&B influences coming together in a single person and in a single album. Absolutely. Um, I am not going to even hope to be as uh, detailed or as eloquent uh, as as you are on these because I really did come and and uh, this it's been one of a few uh, of these uh, episodes where I've come at building this list with zero knowledge and uh, and it's been really fun because of that so uh, what you're going to get from me is just I don't know I kind of like this one <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fair I'm with that um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put my number one in as um, Louis Ramirez with Alibaba. I it's uh, so sort of doing a little bit of uh, of research. Um, this is a name I could I could understand. He was um, dubbed the Quincy Jones of salsa. Um, I I liked the so listening to a lot of this. I'm not at a discerning enough point yet where I'm sort of really picking out. This is uh, very quintessential of this particular sound or this era or this musician. You know, these are the the kind of riffs that he does. That kind of thing. Um, but for, from my perspective. Uh, I enjoyed the variety uh, of of different songs. There were some really there were some silly songs in this album, yes, yeah. uh, deliberately so, uh, and a lot of playfulness. Um, but some sort of catchy songs, um, and it, it again reminded me of that that sort of that old Scar era. Um, some of this in in the recordings, there's something very satisfying about 
the distortion that you get from old vinyl recordings um or the way they they used to be recorded in the in the in the 60s the way that what that does to brass um i find very uh very pleasing because it just it it sets a lovely tone so um yeah uh that that is uh, that's my number one I think that's a great choice, and I'm glad that you brought in Louis Ramirez. And if you bring in Louis Ramirez, the other person you have to bring in is really who was his main musical partner when when Ramirez was still alive, which was Bobby Marin. And I forget who who was the arranger versus who was the producer. I'm pretty sure Bobby was more of a producer, and I think Louis was the primary arranger, and I can't remember who did was the primary songwriter. But they basically were a team, and they were, I think, if not, I'm trying to think of who would have been a more dominant duo in that whole Latin uh, boogaloo scene. And it really probably was Louis and Bobby. And they were, in a lot of ways, I don't think given sufficient credit. And partly it's because Louis, even though he had a few albums that he headlined, uh, and as well as Bobby, they did most of their work behind their behind the scenes. So there's, those are two names that you see appearing on a lot of a lot of liner notes. You may not necessarily see them as the primary artist being credited, but they were absolutely vital in shaping the sound of that New York um, within that New York Boogaloo uh, community, uh, and just giants and giants within that. And unfortunately, I forget when Louis passed away, but I, but but it was certainly before his time. Uh, whereas Bobby is, is still alive; he lives down in Florida, uh, and is just a living legend in the same way that Joe Baton is. And those two guys were really, really crucial to a lot of different artists, different labels. Um, I could go on a whole side thing about the subsidiary label called Speed Records, which was a Latin music label that they were in charge of, but oftentimes, again, not really given credit for it. Uh, and Speed was a really key Latin soul label that I think a lot of connoisseurs of, of Boogaloo are aware of, but it doesn't necessarily have the same kind of mainstream awareness that something like Afania or Tico might have had. But again, Louie and Bobby were were key behind that. And I think Alibaba is a great example of them at their at their finest doing work together. Wonderful. Um I feel vindicated in my choice. Um what's uh, what's number two then? So number two and three are really quite interchangeable. And I wanted to go with um the two artists who really helped to popularize the genre in terms of as the hit makers. Uh, the first I went with is Pete Rodriguez and his album named I Like It Like That, which is named after the hit single, also called I Like It Like That. And contemporary fans of Cardi B's song I Like It Like That will recognize this because that is where Cardi B is literally sampling from is the Pete Rodriguez rendition of I Like It Like That. Um, and then if, if, if you don't mind, I'm just going to skip to number three, cause I'm really just grouping these together. Mm. The other one would be Joe Cuba's, his album wanted dead or alive. Uh, that's on Tico records. I think the, the, if I didn't mention already, the, the Pete Rodriguez album was on Allegre. These are all kind of the key New York Latin labels that you see Boogaloo emerging on. And the similarity that both Pete and, and Joe, uh, Cuba, uh, share is that they both were making Latin music in New York uh, prior to the emergence of Latin Boogaloo in the mid 60s. And in most cases, there's those previous albums. They must have been successful enough that they got to make several of them. But neither of those groups really found notoriety and success until they made the turn towards Boogaloo. So even though they were making music before that era began, it was when that era came to fruition that they were able to capitalize on that. And they did so by creating some of the big mega hits of that era. So in the case of Pete Rodriguez, off of the I Like It Like That album, it's the song by the same name. And then on Joe Cuba's Wanted Dead or Alive, it was the song Bang Bang. Which was, I think, the first mega smash, you know, million seller Latin Boogaloo hit to emerge once that genre came uh, came of age. And so both of these guys, again, they got their start earlier. They were slightly older than someone like a Joe Baton, but they made the turn towards Latin Boogaloo and became hit makers as a consequence of that. Uh, I had uh, Joe as my number two and um, Pete as my number four. Um, both both the, the, the same albums, um, and and absolutely uh, the uh, to use to use the modern parlance, um, there there are songs that uh, they they slap, they bang, um, <laughs> indeed. 
yeah, I uh, I also like the um, Hey Speedy album um, by uh, by Joe Cuba as well. Sure, I mean C- Cuba's his releases when he was making Latin boogaloo music proper because he later then transitioned more into Latin soul and then into the salsa era. But I think his 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 Latin boogaloo albums really any of them were fantastic and you could you could swap one out for the other and you'd still you'd feel still you would still find the same level of enjoyment from it uh very good okay so i'm gonna go with my number three which is uh mongo santa maria and watermelon man exclamation mark um i am always a sucker for a watermelon man cover I just I, I I love it. I love that track. Um, and and there's I know there's a couple of uh, of Latin Boogaloo um, covers of this, uh, but this this one particular the, the whole album I thought um, was good. The uh, again you you really very especially in, in this you get that vinyl uh, distorted brass which which comes through a lot. But it's 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 quite a cool sounding album. So some of these I think. Um, some of the other ones, the words that I was using were kind of celebratory and joyful, and and this one was a bit more sort of, hey, you know, we're a bit more, we're a bit more sophisticated on this one, we're a bit more chilled, um, and and that that was sort of the the vibe I got from this, um, but uh, a, a very enjoyable listen. Yeah, you know, with Mongo and that album in particular, and this is being very much splitting hairs or nitpicky, is I always think of that album as being a proto Boogaloo album, but not a ah. proper Boogaloo album. And, mm-hmm. and of course, these kinds of genre distinctions are, are entirely arbitrary and subjective to a certain degree. I think I think almost anybody would certainly put the Watermelon Man album as being a, a key precursor and influencer in the same way that Ray Barreto's hit El Watusi is seen as being very much a proto Boogaloo track. And I think one of the main differences that people tend to assert as to how, well, how does one tell the difference between the two? Because something like Watermelon Man, right? This is a Herbie Hancock song. It's an American jazz song that's being adapted into a, an Afro-Cuban style that seems very similar to what you see with a lot of Latin Boogaloo songs is um, it also has English lyrics. And a lot of the proto Boogaloo stuff that was coming out by artists like Mongo Santa Maria, like Ray Barreto, et cetera, oftentimes were still in Spanish because that was the dominant language in, in the New York Latin scene. And Latin Boogaloo songs, maybe not exclusively, but many of them had English lyrics. And it was a way of broadening the crossover appeal of those songs, not just to you know, young Puerto Rican or Cuban American or whatever people growing up, but white, black, uh, you know, Jewish audiences in the New York area. So I'm not going to say that Watermelon Man doesn't qualify, but for me, partly because it comes out previous to what we think of as the birth of a boogaloo, I always think of it as happening as just a precursor, as a proto song. But sure, I think you can make a, a strong argument for it. I would just add, though, that the Santa Maria family member who was making hit Boogaloo albums was Mongo's son, Manguito Santa Maria. Oh, wow. Who came out with, I want to say, at least two or three really, really highly sought after uh, Boogaloo albums during that same era. And, and Manguito would have been of the right or same generation as someone like a Joe Baton, like, you know, if not still, if not still a teenager, just barely out of their teens. Uh, I recommend people look up Manguito's song, Hey Sister. Uh, which is, I think, his biggest Latin Boogaloo hit at the time. So clearly there was something running in the family in terms of their attraction to this fusion style. Very good. Well, uh, what is your number four then? So number four is Ray Barreto's Acid, which was released on Fania Records. And the reason I picked this is because I wanted to have on this list a representation of how an older Latin musician adapted to Boogaloo and adapted to the whole Latin soul music uh, movement, because this did happen amongst a lot of those older Latin music Mambo era giants that I had mentioned earlier. I don't remember if if Barreto made a ton of Mambo music, but he certainly was making... um, he was involved with the kind of charanga and pachanga scenes uh, in the early 60s um, and was senior enough that him putting out an album like Acid, which to me is just flat out one of the best Latin soul albums ever recorded. I mean, it's on my top five list. Obviously, it was an example of where someone who generationally preceded 
a lot of these younger cats was still able to come in and adapt to the style and do it really, really, really beautifully. There were certainly other artists who in a lot of ways were forced to have to adapt. The parallel that I often draw would be American soul and R&B stars of the early 70s who by the end of the decade were putting out questionable disco albums or disco <laughs> albums of questionable quality because mm. they had to adapt to what was the hit style even if they did it begrudgingly and in a lot of cases kind of incompetently the the less we talk about james brown's disco era the better for example <laughs> and there were certainly a lot of older latin music stars that also felt like well if i'm going to stay relevant while boogaloo is hitting i have to make a boogaloo album but I'm not going to have fun doing it. I'm going <laughs> to talk shit about this afterwards, years later, that you know, effectively I was forced to do this. I don't feel like Beretta was ever like that. I think he embraced what Boogaloo represented, and I think that he approached an album like Acid with an open mind and open arms, and I think you really hear that in this album. And it's, it is a more sophisticated album musically than I think a lot of the other albums that I've mentioned on this list because him and his band had more time together. They had their chops together in a way that was more mature and more sophisticated. And you can hear that on the Acid album. I think from what I've from what I've heard, that makes a lot of sense because I had a harder time with this one. Um, and I I found it a, elements of it less to my taste. And there were certain things that it felt a bit uh, a bit repetitive i i enjoyed um a deeper shade of soul mm-hmm. but there were sort of other other ones where I, I sort of i don't know but i i i can understand that the context you've given there does explain to me why that felt a different album because it was coming from i think there there are elements there that are coming from a different place um and and so i can i sort of appreciate that even if it's not necessarily to my taste i can sort of yeah understand where where it was coming from Right. And a, a song like the title song, Acid itself, is not to me a, 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 a classic boogaloo, but it is just one of the greatest Latin songs recorded in, in that entire decade. And it is repetitive, but in a way to me that feels completely hypnotic. Um, it's something that oftentimes I think of some of the uh, Afro-funk music that Fela Kuti was putting out uh, by the 1970s shares some of that same kind of hypnotic feel that a song like Acid has. And it's one of those very much slow burner club tracks where when you first put it on, it, its tempo is kind of slow. It certainly takes a while to build, but there's something about it that just, it just lures you in. And I think even though there are more proper Boogaloo songs on that album, Deeper Shade of Soul being one of them, for example, I think the title track is actually the best song on there, even though it's not a it's not a conventional boogaloo by I think most people's expectations. Okay, so my next one, um, I think it's on a qualifying record label, <laughs> uh, but w- whether whether this this qualifies, I'm not entirely sure. Um, so we'll see how we go. But it's uh, La Lupe, um, Labyrintho de Passions, um, or Passiones, um, and I I sort of went a bit off piste with my um, discovery and 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 try to try to really you know not not be too influenced by um information i might have already been privy to so i, I wanted to just go go exploring uh and and la lupe was um I, this one i, I it, it's it's very it's very sexy oliver it's a lot of it's very um yeah it's uh it, it's 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 very um it's very sexual um but it was a, really a really fun uh album and uh, there's a a, fee, a cover of um a fever on there which is you know it's, it's just the whole the whole album is just dripping with raunch I uh, yeah, it, this is sort of one that I, I absolutely wanted to put in because it was it was enjoyable, and uh, I'm sure you can you can now take me to task of whether this qualifies. <laughs> and remind me, was this off of Mercury? Oh, uh, I don't know. According to um, Wikipedia, it was Tico. Okay, that might that might be the case. I, I'm used. To, I know that Mercury released Fever as a single, right? On it on that label, but it might have been they had some kind of distribution deal through Tico. In any case, this is we're getting a little bit in the weeds. No, I'm glad you picked La Lupe only because you know on my list, not to spoil my number five yet, but I have I've no women on there, and partly it's it's largely because there were very few notable or really even obscure very few obscure even latin boogaloo stars that were women it was an overwhelmingly male dominated genre and i think la lupe might be 
because Sulia Cruz, by the time she came out, she was just full on doing salsa. So, she, you know, I don't think there's any kind of Boogaloo era stuff that you can associate with Celia Cruz. Um, you know, there are a few people that were here and there. There, I have like a Mexican Boogaloo album that was done by, I think, a pair of sisters. Uh, but for the most part, all of the key, key players, the ones at least that rose to prominence uh, were men. And so La Lupe, and in particular on the strength of a single like fever, which became a minor hit into itself, she's one of the few people that oftentimes gets mentioned amongst this otherwise sea of masculinity, if you will. And, and you know, to, her, to your point, um, there is a lot of raunch there. You mentioned earlier an album like Alibaba and a lot of Louis Ramirez's. And, and Bobby Marin's some of their other stuff, especially the stuff they did on um, on Speed Records, which I mentioned earlier, which was the subsidiary that they they were in in charge of. There's a lot of uh, innuendo and and sexual themes, both explicit and implicit, running through there. Because remember, these are these are young people. These are people in their te- late teens or early twenties putting out this music. Um, I think as stately as we might consider some of the older uh, Afro-Cuban styles, Boogaloo was very much a, a music of youth. And so it's not surprising that you would see a little bit of raunch, a little wink, wink here and there. And La Lupe, besides the content, I think the other distinguishing thing is just her voice, that kind of high pitched um, you know, whistle of a voice, I think is one of the really, really distinguishing things about her. And so you could never mistake her for somebody else when she got on a record because her voice was, was so unique to herself. Okay. So finally then you're number five. So as I said earlier, I mean, this was the hardest one to pick because it's the last slot open. And I think anytime I've ever been asked to do something like a top five list or a top 10, I usually just try to qualify that that last slot is is open to to exchange at some later point or we thought. But in this case, I decided to go with just a sentimental favorite. Um, I, I also think it's just one of the best, um, you know, Latin Boogaloo, Latin soul albums of its era, which is an album by the late Bobby Matos, who just passed away a couple of years ago, called My Latin Soul. It was released on Philips, which is a, a pretty significant label, but not one that people necessarily associate inherently with Latin music, even though like most big labels of the 60s, they dabbled in Latin releases because they're just trying to diversify their holdings, if you will. But in any case, My Latin Soul was Bobby's first album. Uh, it's an album where I, I've had the, I did have the privilege to be able to interview him when he was still alive. And it's an album where he understands that it's a cult classic, but in a lot of ways, he's kind of embarrassed by it because as, as he was saying to me, it's like, I was so young I didn't really have my chops down. I'm some I'm I'm so much a better player. I'm a better band leader now. And I know people love listening to that first album of mine, but every time I listen to it, I kind of cringe because I just hear how green I am as a musician. And I always I always think about that because I think the ways in which so many of us as listeners we love the kind of super raw, almost amateur feel to a lot of different uh, musicians who would go on to have longer careers and have become much more sophisticated on different technical levels. But what we won't want to hear is that is that rawness, is the early stuff, if you will. And there is this divide sometimes between listeners and artists with what artists are proud of is not necessarily what we as listeners love. And I think that that tension that exists in that space between those things is a good reminder that what creators make and what we receive as listeners, we're not always on the same page. And I think that that tension is one of the things that makes music in part- and all forms of culture, really, but music in particular, makes it so fascinating is that the intent of the maker and how it's received, that may not always be the same. And it gives us power as the listener, but it also is something that frustrates the creators. Uh, okay, so my my final one um, before we sort of get into honourable mentions um, is uh, Hector Rivera and At the Party, mm. uh, which is a sort of soul infused. Um, uh, well, I mean they're, they're all kind of soul infused, but this is the first one where I was like, oh, I, re- I really, I really sort of sort of feel that. Um, but it also had I, I noted much more of of, of a specific Latin flavour. Um, it, it just felt more. Uh, and again, not necessarily armed with uh, armed with the, the the right the right words. I, that that was just something that, that I sort of I noted down. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll almost definitely butcher the pronunciation, but um, Previs Wilma was was a, a song that I, I particularly liked. 
at the party another great choice and i think that's another example of an artist that if for people who are fans of of american latin music in general that name may not necessarily rise anywhere near the same tier as let's say a ray barreto or a mongo santa maria but for that that moment in that mid 60s era someone like hector rivera could come out with an album like uh at the party and a single by the same name and have themselves a minor hit and so um there are i won't say certainly not thousands hundreds might be even stretching it but there are at least there are dozens of other album of other artists and other albums that are very much like at the, at a party at the party which is that they were able to catch lightning in that in the bottle during that those the few years in which latin boogaloo really had resonance um and you know if for every at the party you find there's going to be a few dozen other albums that have that same kind of feel good vibe to it um from artists that again we may not really remember 20 30 40 years going on but in that moment we're able to, to become minor stars and just a just a couple of quick mentions of of other uh, albums that i i, I checked out were um, another joe batan one uh, which was subway joe yeah um that was the, the the one i checked out his second album yeah which uh, which i enjoyed and also uh george guzman um in line uh which had some some quite some really quite kind of challenging more complex numbers mozambique being one of them right and if i if i you know, had expanded this, I might have tried to find room for someone like an, an Eddie Palmieri, who became a much bigger star in the salsa era. But um, like a lot of other musicians who whose careers began, preceded both the Boogaloo era and then survived its demise, someone like a Palmieri and, and his brother Charlie, both of the Palmieri brothers were recording Boogaloo songs within that, that, uh, that, that little window. Um, you can include within that someone like uh, oh God! Who, uh, sorry, Larry Harlow, right, and the orchestra Harlow, who was someone who became a much bigger star in the salsa era. And Larry actually, you know, if you can find interviews with him, he was not a fan of Boogaloo uh, and talked shit about it. But he actually, him and his group made a couple, maybe two or three, really good Latin Boogaloo albums. So it always surprises me these people who who repudiate the style later. But I'm thinking, but man. You made some great hits with, with in that era, even if you don't you don't you don't you don't look back upon it fondly. So, um, yeah, there's so many other people that I could have I could have added in there that would have been um, notable. Uh, Willie Colon, one of the giants of salsa. I think a lot of people forget his very first album, uh, El Malo, was a Boogaloo album, or at least it had two or three clear like they're obviously boogaloo tracks in fact he even says like i'm singing a boogaloo or, or something near that explicit on a couple of them and so um it was the jumping off point for a lot of people who later became bigger stars when salsa took over the 1970s but you look deep into their discography it's like oh you got started in the boogaloo era because that's how as a young person if you didn't have a reputation before, this is one way that you were able to rise to some kind of prominence and then capitalize on that as the Latin music scene evolved, especially in New York, Miami, uh, Havana, etc. Okay, so the, the the crucial question is: you are you are the one with 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 um, domain knowledge in this in this particular area. So, my question to you is: given your top five, um, have I given you any? Given that we are building. Uh, a, a definitive list. Have I given you anything that might make you tweak your lineup? <sighs> and it's okay if the answer's no. I've been hurt before. Do me a favor and just remind me, what were your five again? So uh, I had uh, Louis Ramirez, um, Alibaba, uh, Joe Cuba, uh, Winter Dead or Alive, which was one of yours, Mongo Santa Maria, Watermelon Man, which I think we can, I, I'm happy to discard. Pete Rodriguez, I like it like that. Uh, La Lupe, um, and then uh, Hector Rivera or Rivera, sorry. I think the one that I would be most open to embracing would be to swap out the Bobby Matos, um, Matos, uh, my Latin soul album, and then put in Alibaba instead. Because while I love my Latin soul, I think it was an oversight for me not to think about in terms of important figures. Louis Ramirez and Bobby Marin absolutely deserve to be in that top five and have some kind of representation there. And Alibaba is as good of an album that you could pick in order to make sure that they're recognized for their contributions. Okay, wonderful. Well, I feel just, I just feel wonderful about that. So uh, what we have then is our, our final list. Um, 
going going uh, down from five uh, or up from five is uh, Louis Ramirez uh, with Alibaba, uh, Ray Barreto uh, with Acid, Joe Cuba wanted dead or alive, Pete Rodriguez, I like it like that, and Joe Batan, Gypsy Woman. Um, now the, the the final question is uh, Oliver Wong, do you consent to this list? <laughs> I don't know if I've ever heard it phrased that way, but yes, <laughs> yes, I I give my consent. Finally, then, um, before we before we uh, bring this home, uh, in in my research, I, I found some interesting um, some interesting tracks. And I, I did want to mention, uh, as I said, that the Cat Empire because um, there there really are some really nice uh, influences there. But also, you mentioned um, the um, or- uh, Harlow Orchestra, um, and there was an album with Ismail Miranda that I. Uh, uh, had had the pleasure of listening to not all boogaloo stuff so again what you were what you're saying obviously rings rings true there um cal jadar probably um butchering that pronunciation um jader i think is, is how it's typically pronounced cal jader there you go there you go thank you um with uh soul source um quite quite a lot of sort of lift music type stuff or elevator music but but that you know some 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 kind of boog- uh, boogaloo in there uh, and also uh, a particular track that i enjoyed if I, it, not necessarily listening to the whole album was willie bobo and uh, dig my feeling mm-hmm. it was just one that uh, that stuck out as um yeah it's sort of t- towards the tail end of my research I was like oh i quite like that uh it reminded me of uh, so a few of these sort of remind me of some um early wilson pickett but also there's uh, really Harlem Shuffle uh, comes in a lot where, mm. and, and obviously you're talking about a lot of this being in Harlem anyway, and you, you can hear the kind of cross-pollination uh, in a lot of that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, this would be a whole other discussion, but you could talk about artists and albums and songs that were very much influenced by the popularity of, of Afro-Cuban styles that crossed over into rock and roll into R&B music as well. And so it, this, you know, this cross-pollination went in both directions. So it wasn't just uh, Latin music absorbing lessons from, from R&B and soul, but it's all, it also absolutely went the other way as well. And so I think this is one of the great histories and things that sometimes are for, is forgotten when we talk about the history, at least of American pop music, is that as much of it is absolutely 100% rooted in a kind of musical cultural dialogue between uh, America's uh, black and white communities. Uh, the Latino community is fundamental in how in shaping the sound of, of American pop music in the 20th century, especially in the post-war era. And so you can't, to me, really talk about things uh, like rock and roll, like uh, R&B and funk, uh, without recognizing the ways in which Afro-Cuban styles uh and jazz as as part of that larger continuum as well all factor into this it's it's just this grand melange that produces all of these different styles that emerge across uh the united states in the post uh, world war ii era that of course then go on to influence music globally okay so um why don't you uh tell us where we can find more of you and your work um and uh so we, we've got um somewhere to continue our journey Sure. Uh, so I have a website that's at Oliver uh, Wong, and this is the confusing part. It's spelled Oliver Wang, but it's pronounced Wong. But uh, uh, Oliver, W-A-N-G dot net uh, is where you can find that. And there should be links to my various social media accounts. But for those of you who are on Twitter, you can find me at Oliver S. Wong. Uh, again, another W-A-N-G. Uh, on Instagram, I'm, I'm at Soul Sides, which is the name of my long-running 15-year audio blog, uh, S-O-U-L-S-I-D-E-S. And as mentioned, the podcast that I do with Morgan Rhodes is called Heat Rocks. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. And our webpage is all uh, linked to Heat Rocks Pod. Wonderful. And of course, um, links are in, the, are in the show notes. Um, Oliver, this has been an absolute pleasure and um, a, a real journey and a, re- a real education. And I'm, uh, I'm indebted to you uh, for that. So thank you very much uh, for, uh, for spending the, the last 50 minutes with me. 